Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to take a journey over to the Pacific and learn a bit more about traditional Pacific food systems. And I have the perfect guest for this. Our guest is Chef Robert Oliver. Robert is a chef, author, and TV host from New Zealand. He has started restaurants in New York, Miami, Las Vegas, and Sydney, as well as farm-to-table resorts in the Caribbean. Robert's the chef ambassador for Le Cordon Bleu, New Zealand, and has authored two popular culinary books, Meakai, The Food and Flavors of the South Pacific, and Mea Samoa. Meakai stunned the food world by winning the best cookbook in the world at the Gourmand Awards in Paris. In 2017, Robert was honored with the Kia World Class New Zealander Award and in 2022 was awarded the New Zealand Order of Merit in recognition for his services to the food industry and Pacific communities. He is the executive director and founder of Pacific Island Food Revolution, a TV media-led movement across the South Pacific designed to return the region to traditional cuisine to curb the Pacific's non-communicable diabetes and lifestyle disease crisis. Pacific Island Food Revolution television plays across the Pacific, in New Zealand, Australia, Asia, the UK, and the USA, and internationally via Parade Media. Robert, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank Thanks you so much for coming. Great to see you. Yeah. So why don't we start with just a little bit more information around what this Pacific Island Food Revolution is. What's the mission and vision of sure. this initiative? So it's called a revolution because it's led by people. And it came about, I'd always, I grew up in Fiji and, my, and we lived in Samoa for many years. So I've had a very Pacific life, but I lived in New York for a long time and I realized that Pacific cuisine was not represented, that various, and I say Pacific cuisine, but actually every island, Fiji, Samoa, Vanuatu, Tonga, Solomon Islands, et cetera, they've got their own cuisine systems. They were not represented. Mm. They were not well known outside of the region. They certainly weren't documented in the literature. And I'd been working in New York with a group of notables like Bill Nyman and Mary Cleaver, who were really the founding members of the kind of local ball movement. And I really be began to understand the wider implications of a food system. What is a localized food system? And this was back in the early 2000s. And I really began to, I, I guess I reflected on what the role that cuisine plays in economy and climate change and health and well-being, et cetera, and recognize that the Pacific and the Pacific Islands, they import most of their food for tourism. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, local food is amazing. The local food that I knew and grew up on is amazing. Why is it not on the menus? And if it was on the menus, the food imports for tourism would go right down and that would just really transform the country's economically, because tourism is a big deal there. So that was how the idea of the first cookbook came along and the second cookbook. They were really focused on getting the cuisine packaged up, understood, create excitement about them, and then hopefully get them on the tourism menus. But what I learned, um, I guess in 2014 or 15, I started hearing about the health numbers. Pacific mm -hmm. has the 10 most obese countries in the world, the diabetes numbers are insane. All lifestyle 
diseases are out of control. And they didn't, it wasn't like that when I grew up there. So what happened, what happened was people changed the way they eat. And around this time, I was appearing as a judge on one of those big, crazy, mega international reality cooking shows. And I'd always been mm -hmm. really cynical about that format because I don't really watch reality TV myself. So I'd always thought it was like trashy. And then I was on it and I was like, wow, everyone's you're watching. Judge. Yeah. And I was, I, everyone's watching and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Because I recognized mm -hmm. that people in the Pacific had gone from eating their own cultural food, which is beautiful and healthy and multidimensional and exquisite in, in every way that gone to eating processed food. And so that had largely happened because of the heavy marketing of processed and fast food. It's happened everywhere, but in the Pacific, it's yes. insane, right? It's insane there. And we're very vulnerable to uh, messages from inter the international arena being picked up by us. It's like something we've always done. And I was like, I've got to, I've got to revive the traditional foods and the traditional food system. And what better way to do it than with trashy TV? <laughs> that's fantastic. So that's how Pacific Iron Food Revolution was born, really. And but it was designed to be not just a TV show, that there was a huge social media infrastructure. And mm -hmm. we had really amazing support from the New Zealand and Australian governments who understood it. And it's just grown and it's just become this thing that I am trying to keep up with. It's amazing. <laughs> when I think about some of the challenges, especially that island nations face, what you're describing in the Pacific is something we also see in the Caribbean. And you can look at Absolutely. island nations like, like Barbados, same Where issue, a lot of imports, yeah. a lot of tourism. And yet the local population is really suffering because they're really importing a lot of these heavily processed foods that's leading to these chronic morbidities associated to diet. Yeah. So maybe you can provide some perspective. I think many in the audience know what this highly processed diet might look like. It's rich in fats, sugar, salts, packaged kind of foods. But what did the traditional Fijian diet look like when oh you were growing God. up as a kid? I get was, hungry talking about it. Oh, I know. Because <laughs> it's, such, it's such beautiful food. So a lot of coconut, coconut rules, mm -hmm. right? The coconut heart, coconut milk, coconut, fermented coconut, juice, coconut. Nice. Right? But that's what, that's what's, what, that's like the underpinning of the whole cuisine system. Apart from that, lots of vegetables. The area is volcanic, largely volcanic, amazing soil. Nature is just throwing incredible food at you. A lot of seaweeds, lots huh. of Pacific oceans. So of course, fish is a yeah. really big deal. And then everything you imagine about the Pacific, which is the mangoes, pineapples, all that. So it's a very like nutritious foundation for life. And the cultural cuisine is built upon these incredible ingredients. So there's some, there's things that like we have in Fiji, we have otter, which is a river fern or a fern, a wild fern. And it's beautiful. There's a common kind of dressing called miti, which is Fresh coconut cream. It's always fresh coconut cream, by the way. It's not from a can. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, of course. You have the freeze everywhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's uh, flavored with onion and chili and then it's salt and it's, and you dress the otter and you dress many things with that, but that, those things you can't, you don't particularly get them out of the Pacific and 
that are worth going there for. And then the seaweeds, I really love, I love all the seaweeds and we have a lot of raw fish. So it's a really generous and unique and exquisite cuisine. And I, I, I felt that when we did the first cookbook, which was um, just glancing on the, just dancing on the top of the story, which was Fiji, Samoa, Vanuatu, Tonga, the Cook Islands and Tahiti. It was like, when the book came out, cause it was like, people were like, wow, we really are amazing. <laughs> and that was like terrific energy to work on for a development space. Yes. And when we talk about food systems and we're often drawn into that conversation, which is often dominated by large agencies where there's a systems approach, but it's quite common for the social aspect to be not put front and center. Like actually it's real change happens through people. So it's social. And if you can get people to, to buy into this concept and be consciously eating from their own food system, that's when everything transforms policies and projects and kind of strategies create the environment, but people do the work. So that's, that's the incredible. heart of Pacific Island Food Revolution is that we've got all these people watching TV. There's all these people in the TV and they're making a change and people come along. People come along on the journey with us. Yeah. So it's all about recapturing that traditional knowledge and traditional cuisine. Who are the holders uh, of the knowledge today? It, are they only the elders or are young people really actively relearning these things? Interestingly. I would have said only the elders five years ago, but there's such a, a, an interest from youth in the Pacific in this. And I would say it's partly because of the Pacific Iron Food Revolution, but it just seems to have happened anyway. I think around COVID, people were really reflecting and home gardening out of necessity. And when you home garden, the crops that grow there are the ones that are indigenous. And so then you cook them and voila, you're cooking the cuisine of the country again. So there's a very uplifting element to it. That, and that's not common in development, by the way, you're often, we are an NCD motivated project, but actually by the time you get to us, it's just fun and joy and just really enjoying the beauty of culture. And that, that does the work, that does the work for you. So in a way, going after these NCDs or these non-communicable diseases, these kind of metabolic syndrome diseases through diet, in a way, this entertainment, this recapturing of traditional knowledge is also a public health campaign is what I'm hearing. It is. It is. And I was aware that the processed foods operate in that space. They play in that space. They're marketing heavy. So we need to be in the same lane, but with a different method mm -hmm. and I, I never go against them. That's not my goal is just to create this great platform for the Pacific, the elders, the youth who were just caught up in this movement to have a place to play. And that's what Pacific Iron Food Re Revolution actually is. We're not inventing anything. We just, we've just got that platform for it to be activated. Yeah. To showcase all this amazing knowledge oh. and traditions. And some of these foods that you're listing, I'm thinking also some of the traditional cuisine of within Japan and Okinawa, when you're talking about the fish and the seaweed rich diets and how important those are, there's, there are many studies showing that those types of diets are beneficial to your health, not just in contrast to highly processed foods, but, in, but have like health benefits. 
Oh, the um, blue zone in their own right. The, the blue zone, yeah, the blue zone. I'm a study of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that I look mm-hmm. up to his work frequently, yeah. and I've just rewatched the Netflix series "Live to Be a Hundred because it's inspiring, and I really appreciate the way he thinks. Because I was like, man, mm-hmm. we're on the right track when I saw that because the way that in that show that Dan Butner, I believe his name is, yeah. the way he measures success of a food system in people's lives. He's, there's actually a metric of robust social relationships, mm-hmm. eating from food that grows nearby you and working kind of activity into your everyday life rather than going to the gym and making it into a chore. Yeah. That was like, cause I hate the gym. So that really impressed me. <laughs> but, but we're, as we move into the next phase of the kind food revolution, we're very mindful that we're living in the area of the world that is most affected by climate change. Mm-hmm. And that food and food choices and food systems, which were just raised at COP28 as being the second most important issue to address globally in terms of um, the climate change problem. Mm-hmm. In the Pacific, we are most affected by climate change and, and, and we have these food systems that are amazing. We bring them back. We're going to be actually, I feel that we're going to be we're going to be developing a kind of a socially led climate change slash food movement that will go a long way towards having an effect. Yeah. yeah. And there's a big nexus between climate change and nutrition and bad health. So if the same food that's good for us is good for the planet, it's, it comes down to that. And the indigenous farming systems in the Pacific, which is how the, all the old crops were grown. And the fact that if you eat, if you're in a country like Fiji or Samoa and you eat a local dish and your choices for that, rather than something that relies heavily on imports or factory-made food with all the emissions associated with that, then it's also imported. There's a lot to play in the climate change and food space. And it, it, it is like, it is the direction we're going to go in. And I raised that because when I saw Live to be 100, I was like, oh, I want to put metrics on our stuff. I want to put yeah. climate change. You do, this means that in that space and nutrition and maintaining biodiversity, a cuisine system, a, a traditional cuisine system is based on a full food basket of all the different crops and all the treasures of the region. And so that's, if we get the cuisine system really going again, which it is starting to, well, it'll have a big biodiverse implication as well, biodiversity implication. Yeah. When I think of of Pacific Islands and climate change, I think that resilience is key of being able to use these traditional systems to maintain a resilient food infrastructure. A couple of years ago, I don't know if it was maybe one or two years ago on the podcast, we had a scientist, her name's Diane Ragoni on the show. And Diane has done incredible work on a crop called breadfruit. Oh, and she's worked with breadfruit across the Pacific the Islands. <laughs> yes. And one of the things that impressed me so much was she told us about how as a means of protecting against famine, that sometimes they will bury the breadfruit to ferment in the ground in case a, typho- a big storm comes through and just wipes out your crops. You have this reserve. Have you encountered that? Yes, your, of course. In, in I, travels? Yeah, I just haven't in my life, not just my that. travels. Yeah. I, I just yeah. haven't heard anyone from outside of the Pacific ever know that. 
Oh. <laughs> I cried. Him. I'm a weird plant. I'm a plant nerd, so I have lots of very strange plant facts. Yeah, no. But yeah. I've never seen it with my own eyes. I've never had the yeah. opportunity to go to the Pacific. So tell me a little bit about that and what it's what that process is like, and maybe even share a little bit about what the food tastes like. What the in process. This is from when I was a kid, so I don't actually. I know that the breadfruit was wrapped in breadfruit leaf and then buried when it was mm -hmm. ripe. And it was partly to do with having food underground when hurricanes came through, cyclones okay. came through, but it was also like a boutique fermented because then it was from memory. I hope I've got this right. was taken out of the ground and then it was put on the lovorn or even just on stones on an open fire where it was cooked and had that very bread, that bread yes. aspect to it. And there is a, and I don't know much about this, and I'm keen to explore this personally. There's a kind of a, a, a suite of survival food methods and foods, and, it, and they are part of the uh, original Pacific kind of system because they were often foods that were used for voyaging. So that's how the Pacific was that's populated. Right. The voyagers, yeah. yes, that spread these with their canoe travels. And, yeah. there was, and, the, and the idea of on these long voyages having foods that kept. Uh, were, mm -hmm. were available to eat during, during these long voyages. So I don't know much about it, but I know there's people in the Cook Islands who know a lot about it. Yes. Yeah. That's exciting. Mm. Cool. Yeah. There's just, there's, it's just a great example of how you have this historically like resilient system because they had to be resilient. Like they had to be prepared for these storms. Mm. I just love learning about those types of food processes. And you also mentioned another fermentation process of you, you mentioned fermented coconut. Mm. I don't believe I've ever had that before. I'm, wow. I'm sure many of our listeners have not. Right. We get our coconut out of the can, unfortunately. I would... yeah. So what is that? What this is, it's not this coconut thing? cream. It's grated coconut. And okay. fresh grated co co coconut, and then it's fermented in seawater. I've never made it. I always buy it in the market in Suva on Saturday morning. So Suva Fiji. Oh, so, so they sell it at like oh, the yeah. open market. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. And it's mm -hmm. got a. It's almost got like a kind of a blue cheese oh. aftertaste to it. It's quite intense, but and it's yeah. I've seen it in Vanuatu, Fiji. I can't think where else I've seen it. But fermented foods are popular everywhere, but. It's really good on Suva Market, which is the most, Suva's the capital of Fiji, and it's mm -hmm. quite large for a Pacific city. It's about 280,000 people or so, and they have this open-air community market. It's been going forever, like well over 100 years. In fact, I remember going to it often. I remember the very first time I went to it as a kid and just being like, Wow, this is, this is my life because it's, it's, awesome. it's, it's the laughter and the gossip and the food and the exuberance of it all is really, it's really amazing. Saturday's a big day to go. And my friend, Sangeeta Maharaj, she's got a, this amazing restaurant in Suva called Eden. I go with her often because she's, she's sassy and she's got her vendors. And but I love it. Yeah, you go down on Saturday morning and all the Villagers from outside of Suva come in with their stuff to mm -hmm. sell. So it's the day of the week to go there. It's such a great foodie experience. But that's when they, that's, you always get kora, which is the fermented coconut then. And it's often, you can buy it just by itself and you can take it home and mix it with raw fish or whatever. We had contestants in the show in season two make a broth out of it. And it was really incredible because it's full of umami and it's full of probiotics. So it's got 
this rich, amazing flavor. But typically you buy a plate of what is called nama, which is a sea grape, a seaweed. And you get it in a little, it's on a leaf and it's got a little package of kora, the fermented coconut and a chili and a lime. And you buy the whole thing and then you mix it up. And then of course the seaweed is super fresh and something about seaweed and fermented flavors is just incredible together. It's a very specific Pacific palate thing that along with smoke, because so much of the traditional cooking was done in the lovo or the umu, which is the earth oven type thing. And so everything's a bit smoky. So those are the three flavors that I most associate to Pacific food is smoke, coconut, and then the fermented and the seaweed flavor together. Yeah. Nice. Wow. See how excited I got just one? I'm excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I need to maybe squeeze in an extra trip. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's great though. Again, you're bringing up these really, this is a fast kind of market stall food, right? But it's not this deep fried, heavily processed thing. It's just sounds wonderful and fresh and full of probiotics. Yeah. I wish we had more options like that in in the U.S. to drive through (laughs) coconut with the lime. Yeah. That's great. No, I've often wondered um, what a Pacific restaurant would look like in the U.S. or, or an eatery. Yeah. I'm sure there are some that I'm not aware of. I don't know of any, but there's always a bit of interpretation for a new market. But to keep that authenticity mm-hmm. would just be amazing. It would be. Yeah. And the freshness yeah. could be key. You've talked a lot about some of the different options. Are there other things around food and biodiversity that you'd like to highlight in the region? Just what I mentioned before is that cuisine, which is the cultural system of food, that's the holder of biodiversity. That's the consumption of biodiversity, which is the market and the need to conserve. Because that's your, if you get influence or get people eating these local recipes, then there's a need for that crop that's, that is used in mm-hmm. the recipe. So it's, it's not an approach that's taken generally to biodiversity. And I just think it'd be good to combine what we do, which is bringing people into the space along with some of the scientific and, and agricultural initiatives. I think, yeah, I think that would be a good way to, to work, but there are lots of things that I, I don't even know where to begin with that because there are so many things that are quite specific to the Pacific. I think that the, the question of biodiversity is raised around, uh, the pressure on Pacific farmers traditionally to monocrop. And it was because it was a big focus on exporting almost above, almost like more pressure on exporting than supplying the local market. And Hmm. so there were some, for example, taro, there are many varieties, but there are only a few that are hardy and last long enough to export. And so the ones that, so there was a lot of work put into promoting the development of them. And in the process, some of the old, some of the other varietals fell by the wayside and some have even been lost. And you don't just lose a crop, you lose all the associated medicinal knowledge and the other uses. And the fact that also that that if something goes wrong with a crop, like they've had issues with blight and in Pacific taro growing, then you don't have a plan B. You, you've only, if you've monocropped, yeah. you've only got that one thing, you're in trouble. 
So yeah. there's many reasons to maintain a biodiverse food basket. Yeah, let alone yeah, all I mean, the it, ecological magic we don't even understand yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. Like when you think about crop genetic diversity, a lot of this is in the hands of small scale farmers. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. When there's pressures to grow just one type of the crop, then those eventually disappear from the foodscape. Um, I'd love to put them on tourism menus. And then really you're driving a massive industry. You, you're making that industry the driver of maintaining biodiversity, of maintaining climate smart systems, of keeping pe- people well. So it yeah. is, there's a wonderful initiative in Vanuatu that I've been doing a lot of work with, and it's called Regenerative Vanua. I'll give you the link. And mm-hmm. that is fundamentally, and it's being led by the former director of tourism there, who was like, there's got to be a better way to do tourism in the islands, rather than just a big hotel model where a lot of the economy leaves the country. And then in my show, when I film in different countries and every country, I've got a, a co-host who's from that country, who's usually a close friend, but in Vanuatu, my close friend and co-host for the Vanuatu episodes is a woman called Batasi Mackenzie Rua. We've been friends for 15, 16 years. And she's the, the mother of Vanuatu cuisine. And she's, she's, she knows it all. And she's been committed. She was a nutritionist who realized that her own cuisine was actually most nutritious for her own country. So she's, she hosts the show with me. Um, mm-hmm. and also she is leading regenerative Vanua, which is a, the fostering of a community led tourism model where the communities create their own tourism activity, often around food. And it's, if people really want to experience the culture, they can go into the community. They can, it's like farm-based tourism in a way, but that's, it just means rural tourism, not away from the hotels. And they can have this food experience, be it cooking or be it eating or be it understand, just understanding all the connections to that and having that really intimate cultural exchange that we often crave as tourists, but it's often a bit out of reach. It's a bit of a secret. And so Regenerative Vanua is bringing that to life in Vanuatu. So I would, I saw there was a big article in the Guardian a couple of days ago that they were mentioned in. So I'm really excited to be working in that space with them. And that to me is the future of tourism in the Pacific. That's exciting. As for, maybe this goes back to your model of through television is really educating tourists too. I've never understood mm. why you would want to go to another cu- country, another culture, and then continue to eat the same food you have in your homeland. Like I want to taste everything that's yeah. local. That's part of the experience. Well, um, I think, and that and people like you, that market's growing as mm, awareness good. of the, and many people, many people travel for food and everyone who travels has to eat. They, they have to eat every day. So that's the opportunity is to, is to channel that market through a meaningful mechanism that enriches local communities, makes local communities aware of how appreciated their food system and their food culture is. And it's a page turner. So I'm really, Pacific Island Food Revolution is, is partnering with Regenerative Vanua to do exactly that. And that's one of the things that, that's one of the great opportunities that are emerging for Pacific Island Food Revolution, we're primarily known as a TV show, but there's a lot behind the scenes that's going on. And 
for the next phase of what we are, we're working with the University of the South Pacific and Fiji National University to create a student food movement. There's so many students are watching the show and they're plugged into the spirit and the message. And I, I did a public talk at the university a while ago and this huge crowd turned up and the question and answer session was just intense, went on for a couple of hours. And I was like, these guys really, they really get it and they love it. And so we're looking at forming a student-led food movement, starting off in Fiji with them documenting their food culture and them forming a social media infrastructure to get this kind of energy behind it. But I'm excited about that because that means I'm facilitating something that young people will carry forward. And then, um, we've also had come out of Pacific Island food revolution, a local revolution in Vanuatu where two of our contestants who became famous, of course, locally, cause they're on the show, uh, their community said to them, well, we want to be part of that too. And they'd seen it on the show. And so they came to us and said, we want to form a, like a community kind of food revolution, which is like a roadshow cooking. And, and it's just a spectacle that goes into the villages and it's called Sanma, S-A-N-M-A food revolution. And we worked with the Asia foundation, which is based out of the U S but their Pacific office really understood this and they were able to help us to design Sanma food revolutions, governing governance systems and help them understand how to receive funds and do the reporting and all that kind of stuff. But they've done, I think, 50 interventions, spectacles across Manawatu, and they've just been asked to go national. It's a great model. And, and they're looking at bringing in Amazing. health experts so they can do screening in the communities while they're there. They want to evolve into also being a disaster relief kind of task force, because often when there's a hurricane, people get white rice and all that stuff dropped off, which of course exacerbates the MCD situation. <laughs> yeah. So, Sanma Food Revolution, it's led by Dr. Basil Leodoro and uh, Chef Primrose Siri. And they're just, they're on social media, on Facebook and Instagram as Sanma, S-A-N-M-A Food Revolution. They're extraordinary. So we want to grow with them because that's, my goal is do the media because the media gets the community excited and then flag yes. in the grassroots leaders and people come to us with their ideas. I don't even have to create the stuff. So it's, yeah, it really is a revolution. That's incredible. Yeah. I love that community impact and, and the enthusiasm. That's exactly what you want to see, what you want to foster. And I know also that you've recently become a food ambassador for the periodic table of food initiative mm. that kind of ties in. This connection also between nutrition and food composition. Absolutely. Sure. What can you tell us about that initiative and, and your involvement? We're just starting, right? But what I'm excited about, and this came through the University of the South Pacific, Vincent Lal, who is at the university and I've been in touch and he invited me to speak at a conference they had where the guys from PTFI were at. And I was like, I've always been wanting to find nutrition partners and people who, who can validate what we do and also put that know-how, that scientific know-how into what we do creatively and culturally. So we're just starting, but I can see that there's going to be magic in the, in the relationship there. And it, it, it is a natural partnership. I, I would, I, you know, I don't have nutrition background. I don't have a science background, but 
to partner with the people who do, I think it makes a lot of sense for everybody. That's great. And I'm wondering when you, especially after hearing about all that you're doing, not just on the national level, but also with local communities, do you envision a way to help translate some of this scientific knowledge on nutrition of local cuisine to communities? Do you think there's a pathway forward for that together? I think it's, I think it underpins, I think it underpins and validates the fact that the local food system, the traditional food system, is of value. So I don't actually have to educate people on nutrition. It mm-hmm. comes along with eating local food. But yeah. what is really good is to educate us and to educate the leaders and to educate mm-hmm. um, the academics, etc., so that we make sure that we're all mindful of what is actually really good for local communities. And there's numbers and the stats and the science behind it. So it, it just adds another layer of energy to the, you know, to the value of the food. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I've always wanted, well, like, and- I've always wanted a science partner, a nutrition partner, <laughs> and I always wanted an academic partner. So it's coming together. With it's all coming with together with this. Yeah. PTFI and the University of the South Pacific. It's coming together. And that's, it's, it's, to me, it's a dynamic potential partnership that we'll be able to work together. And you mentioned the Caribbean before, and I lived in the Caribbean for some time. I lived in Trinidad and Barbados. And I'm like, wow, the Pacific, we can design this model that could well apply elsewhere. It could well be mm-hmm. operationalized in Africa. It could, you mentioned that you can see how it would work in the Caribbean. And so Absolutely. We're, we're, and that's, so that's another part of these partnerships like PTFI that have this big global presence is like, what do we do next, guys? <laughs> it works. I love it. It works. It works. And I think I've been to Barbados a, a few times in the over the past couple of years. I have some colleagues there that are ethnobotanists doing work on biodiversity research. And one of the things that I noted the last time I was there is there's this community-led effort to establish an edible food forest. Mm. And there are local people going out to, to learn more about wild foods and cultivate different crops that can be grown on the island. They're also integrating the Japanese tradition of forest bathing, of just spending time in nature. And so I think there, I think there is a desire for movements like this to both like reclaim food identities in, in many places that have really started to feel that impact of non-communicable diseases, of these diseases that are a result of the types of foods that are coming in mm. that are being imported. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity. And those things that you mentioned, I would say they're probably a feature of Pacific life naturally. It's mm-hmm. just they get left yes. behind as, as regions globalize. And, but they yes. are my inspiration in my life as a woman called Mrs. Suliana Siwatimbao, who I've known for almost as long as I can remember. And she has a, she has a property up the back of Suva, Fiji, where she's been collecting almost like disappearing varietals, aerial Ooh. yams and all the different types of taro. Nice. And she, mm-hmm. there's a way that she is. It's not just, it's not just what she does. It's, there's a reverence and it's not like this kind of holy moly, sacred out of reach thing. It's just this reverence for the processes of life and the observance and gratitude towards nature that I always mm-hmm. say that 
someone said to me once, what does she teach you? What does she teach you? And I said, she teaches me about the spiritual majesty of nature. Wow. Yeah. That's a beautiful, that's that's a a beautiful way to explain it. That's a (laughs) lot. lot. That is a lot. Yeah. No, but those are the teachers I think more of us need in our lives Mm. because I had a teacher like that in the Amazon when I did my early studies in ethnobotany and it, his lessons, that reverence for nature, that respect Mm. for understanding the interconnectivity between us as human creatures and all the other forest creatures, that really, it it made a mark on me that influences me to this day. It helps me look at the world in a different way. And I I wish more people could have that opportunity to learn how to look at the world through those lenses. Well, that's why David Attenborough does what he does. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, the more you can, yeah, the more you can connect people to nature, the better off we'll be as a planet. And I looked at some of the panels. Yeah. Yeah, to be able to live in a sustainable fashion within your environment and to have access to good and nutritious food that's culturally appropriate. It's food sovereignty. It's health sovereignty. It's incredible. We're almost out of time, so I want to make sure we take a moment. Yeah, I know. I could talk for hours with you. (laughs) Next time we meet, I think we have to do it at that incredible market with some plates, some leaves full of food in our hands. So tell us, remind the audience, where can they go online to find out more about, about this food revolution program? Sure. So the best place is to go to our YouTube page, Pacific Island Food Revolution on YouTube. And we don't have the show on there, but we've got lots of clips from the show. We've got interviews that, that I do, like you're doing with me, with some amazing people from the Pacific and just bits and pieces. There's lots of good video content in there. Our Instagram is good. It's Pacific Island Food Revolution also, and also the Facebook page. But there's also a website called PacificIslandFoodRevolution.com, which has got a lot of our recipes on there oh. from the show. So that's a treat. And that's, and then there's, there's kind of results. What's, what's been great for us is that we found that it works. The model works. The New Zealand and Australian government invested a lot into making, into this experiment. And then we invested a lot into checking that it actually worked. And the impact assessment report from after year two was eye-wateringly good. Amazing. Um, We found that in most countries, like in Samoa, for example, I think it was 84% of Samoans were watching the show. Wow. um, Or plugging into social media, which was all. And of those numbers around 42% were saying that they had made a change in their diet. So it's early days, but it's, the numbers are so big that we can keep going and take that magic and really keep going with it. I think that we'll see a transformed health situation in the Pacific, let alone all the other implications of it. But yeah, so, so the kind of snapshots, the highlights from the very long monitoring evaluation report, but the snapshot is on the website. It's under a tab called impact assessment report. Amazing. Oh, and I I would feel really bad if I didn't ask this last question. (laughs) Can you share with us a recipe that while we don't have fresh coconuts here, are there any recipes that you think that we could try to go for? And maybe 78% of the podcast audience is from the U.S., We've got every, but we have lots of other countries globally distributed. So this is a really hard challenge. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do the, I'll do the obvious and the easy that does okay. work anywhere. 
which okay. is, um, you know, we, we do a lot of raw fish because mm-hmm. the fish is, the oceans are so clean and the yeah. fish is so good. And it's always been the main protein of the, of the diet. Mm-hmm. And I think the region's well known for raw fish. I think the Pacific along with Japan are the places that are best known. So, so there's a raw fish recipe everywhere. And many places have many. Tahiti has many raw fish recipes. Okay. But I'll give you the Fijian one that I like to make at home. And it's called Kokonda, K-O-K-O-D-A. And Fiji, you put an N sound before the D. So it's said Kokonda. Okay. And it's fish and coconut. So you can use, Fijians tend to marinate the fish a bit longer than the other islands. Um, But if you're using tuna, you don't have to. So you just dice up some tuna. Awesome kind of white fish, like a snapper or the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, if you're using a, a white fish, you dress it in a little lime juice mm-hmm. and lemon juice and let it sit for maybe half an hour or so. Uh, you drain a lot of the lemon juice off. If you're using tuna, just quickly dress some lemon juice before you move to the next step. And the next step is adding miti. And miti is coconut cream, chopped chili, uh, chopped onion. I like using scallion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can put cucumber, in fact, in New Way, they use a lot of the, the one I had there, they used a lot of cucumber. And I was like, why have I done that so much? Then I tasted the cucumber and it was just so, I don't know what the variety was. It was incredible. Wow. They used, they used Wahoo when I had it in New Way, which is a little Pacific country with only a thousand people living there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so you've got your fish and you've got your coconut and your chili, chopped tomato, chopped onions. Uh, chopped scallions or um, or onions, and you can put some coriander, chopped cilantro if you want, mm-hmm. uh, salt and pepper if you want. Make sure you use sea salt, of course, because it is a sea recipe. And that's it. Amazing. And you just mix that all together. That sounds so tasty. It's so good. <laughs> okay. It's on the, the cover photo of my first book because it's like oh. one of those dishes that people and it, it is a dish that has made all of the tourism menus in the Pacific. As Fabulous. Well. And this yeah. is your like major, you know, world award winning cookbook. Remind, remind us of the title of that because, you know, with the holidays <laughs> yeah. around, I, I'm sure many people would love to get some nice books for. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it's not, it's not available anymore. It's, it's quite old now. Okay. Um, it's called, it's called Me'ekai, uh, the food and flavors of the South Pacific. And it's covering mm-hmm. six Pacific countries. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Chef Robert, for coming on the show. Sure. This was so much fun. And I'm I'm inspired to definitely um, think about uh, the importance of local foods and, you know, creative ways we can use entertainment to recapture the imagination of local people, you know, for the not only recapturing cuisine, but also recapturing access to health through these healthy foods. So thanks so much for coming and sharing Pleasure. that. Yeah, yeah, great to see you. You too. All right. We've, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Squadcast. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for putting on a great show. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in each and every week. If you want to get some fun swag, head over to our website at foodiepharmacology.com. We have lots of fun T-shirts and mugs and other cool gear to, to check out. If you want to see the video version of this episode, head over to the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel and you can find the podcast anywhere that podcasts are streamed. 
Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. This Foodie Pharmacology podcast is part of a special series co-designed with the Periodic Table of Food Initiative, also known as the PTFI. The views and opinions in this podcast are those of the presenters and represent the synthesis of science. The PTFI is a program of RF Catalytic Capital, managed by a collaborative team at the American Heart Association and the Alliance of Bioversity, CIAT, that seeks to advance our fundamental understanding of food composition by providing tools, data, and training to scientists across the globe so they can better characterize the quality of the world's edible biodiversity. The PTFI's ultimate goal is to advance data-driven solutions in the food sector for the health of people and the planet. Funding for the PTFI is provided by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, Cereve Foundation, Fourfold Foundation, and Atria Health Collaborative.